Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's really great to see such a full church uh, this morning. Everything in me wants to say Merry Christmas to you. But as you know, it is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and in, a, in an effort to be liturgically correct, I will not say that, although if you wish me Merry Christmas in the narthex, I will respond in kind. I promise that. But we are still in Advent, and that means this is the last sermon of our Advent series. And for you visitors, and I can see there are many of you here this morning, our Advent series has been about Jesus in Genesis. So we've been going to the book of Genesis and looking at texts in Genesis that already in the first book of the Bible point ahead to Jesus and anticipate Jesus and show that that God has had a plan right from the beginning. And that's true of today's two texts. We're reading two parts of Genesis, uh, one from Genesis 18, verses 10 through 15, and then Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. And I, I think it will be clear how these two texts are related. So let's read them and let's start with the Genesis 18 text. Uh, just to give you a little context, um, Sarah and Abram are living by the Oaks of Mamre. They're, they're still living a relatively nomadic life. They don't have any land. And they're quite old, very old. And they receive three visitors. And these three visitors are at least angels. Uh, Some people speculate that God himself is one of the visitors. I won't get into that. But this is what happens in the middle of that visit. Verse 10. Then one of the visitors said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abram and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, I will now have this pleasure. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Now let's go over to chapter 21. This is about a year later, and this is what happens. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abram gave him the name Isaac. Abram gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him, which of course means he laughs. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abram circumcised him as God commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse a child, would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, uh, I read an article on a website called Mere Orthodoxy. It was written by a scholar who I don't really know named Michael Sikasis. And in this article, 
He was noticing a phenomenon that he had experienced in his own personal life when he would go to the movies. When he would go to the movies, and especially when he would go to certain kinds of movies, movies that were sincere, movies that were deep and tried to say something meaningful, uh, movies that were, were trying to say something about virtue and goodness and truth. And, and he was, so um, for example, the examples he gave are, are movies like Saving Private Ryan or Les Miserables or The Fellowship of the Rings, okay? Those are all movies that are sincere. They're, they're trying to be meaningful. They're trying to say something important about the world. They're trying to say something about virtue, right? Saving Private Ryan, about sacrifice and patriotism. Um, Les Miserables, about grace and forgiveness. And the Fellowship of the Ring was saying something about, about um, friendship and, and service. So they're all trying to say something significant. And what Mr. Sakakis noticed is that in those movies, in the theater, and precisely at the moment when those movies were saying the deep thing, the sincere thing, the meaningful thing, some people in the theater would laugh. Not at a funny part, but at the moment when the characters were trying to be deeply sincere and say something that mattered, laughter would ripple through the whole theater. What's going on there? What is it that would make people laugh at a point in a movie like that? Sakeka suggests that it is a self-protective laughter. That when these people laugh like that, what they're trying to do is protect themselves against feeling. They're laughing at that point in the movie because they want to protect their hearts against any idea or any feeling that might impinge on those hearts. Okay? Protect themselves against any idea or feeling that might require them to surrender their hearts. And so they laugh. It protects against feeling. And ultimately, I would say, it protects against hope. Sarah knew all about exactly that kind of laughter. Sarah had been laughing that kind of laughter, that laughter that Michael Cake has heard in the theater. She'd been laughing that kind of laughter for years. Didn't start out that way. When she started out, she was full of hope. When she and Abram got married in Ur, their hometown, she had all kinds of hopes, hopes for them making a home together hopes of them having a family together, hopes of them settling down in a community and making friends, hopes of picnics and playdates, picket fences. Even after Abram came to her and told her that she had to leave Ur and that they were going on a journey far away, she didn't lose that hope. Abram came to her by the campfire one night. It was one of those nights where the, the whole night was a dome of stars. And he came to her, and his whole face was lit up. His eyes were intense. You could see the excitement on his face. He said, Sarah, Sarah, we've got to leave this place. We're going on an adventure. Sarah, I've spoken to God. And we're going to go to a faraway land, and he's going to make us flourish there. And Sarah, he's going to give us descendants, descendants like the stars in the sky. And the whole world is going to be blessed through us, Sarah. And Sarah could see the excitement in, in Abraham's eyes. And so that hope started to live in her. But that was more than 25 years ago, 25 years of nomadic wandering and disappointment. Early in the journey, she'd been full of expectation. Every month, she'd been sort of sensing 
super attentive to her own body, trying to feel like, oh, is it happening this month? Is life kicking inside me? Is this going to be the month? Is this going to be the month? Is this going to be the month? On and on it went, month after month, year after year. And now, it had been years since she'd paid any attention at all. Every night at the dinner table, Abraham prayed the same prayer they've been praying for years. God, thank you for your gifts to us. Lord, please fulfill your promises to us. And together they'd mumble amen at the end of that prayer, but they didn't really expect anything to happen anymore. What did Sarah expect? Mostly she expected that tomorrow would be just like today with the same set of problems, only she'd be one day older and a little more tired. Which is why she laughed back in chapter 18, which is why she laughed in that first chapter I read. Those three visitors come and they say to Abram, by this time next year, your wife Sarah's gonna have a baby. And Sarah overhears it and she can't help herself. She laughs, she, she Isaacs, she Itzaks, she scoffs because it's just so absolutely ridiculous. She can barely get her 90-year-old body out of a chair, and now she's going to carry a baby? Are you kidding me? I think that the sound that Michael Sakakis heard in that theater that day was, was almost exactly like the sound that Sarah made in the tent when she had those three visitors. I think it was the same sort of laugh, the same sort of self-protective laugh. When Sarah laughed in that first passage I read, Sarah was protecting herself. It is the laugh of someone who not only did not have hope, but who had stopped trying to hope. That's an important distinction. It's not only that Sarah did not have hope, she was at a point in her life where she, was stopped, she had stopped trying to have hope. Okay, that's a pretty good definition of what it means to be cynical. All right, when you're cynical, not only do you not have hopes, you're not trying to have hopes anymore. In fact, you are guarding yourself against hoping. That is a perilous spiritual condition that afflicts many souls. C.S. Lewis writes about that condition. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis actually writes about laughter and about humor. He has a whole chapter on it. And Lewis is a very pro-laughter kind of guy. Uh, Lewis liked a drink at the pub and he liked to laugh. So most of the chapter, he's talking about all kinds of, of great ways that people can laugh together. But then at the end of the chapter, he identifies one kind of laugh, he says, which is caustic, which, is, which, is, which decays Christian faith. He calls it flippancy. Flippancy, what is flippancy? Lewis said, flippancy is when you make fun of virtue and when you laugh at things that are good and serious. Flippancy, says Lewis, is making a joke out of virtue or talking as if virtue were funny. Flippancy, says Lewis, is a frame of mind where serious subjects are treated as if they're ridiculous. Flippancy, says Lewis, builds up a strong armor plating against the things of God. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It creates no affection among those who practice it. That's flippancy. I think it's fair to say that we are living in an age of flippancy. We are living in a flippant age. It's not just Sarah in 
Genesis 18, it's not just all those kids in the movie theater. This world is full of people who frankly just aren't expecting anything anymore and are trying to protect themselves against hope. People who talk as if virtue is ridiculous. I see it reflected in the polls, right? And we all know that when you look at the polls and people talk about the future, everyone's negative about the future, right? Everyone thinks that the future is going to be miserable. All the numbers are way down. And in the past, what would happen is if the economy got better, the surveys on hope would, would rise with it, right? People become more hopeful. But lately, that's not happening. The economy gets better, and people's hope still stays down here. Our cynicism has become a kind of steady state. When I was young and heard the Genesis 18 story, maybe this goes for you too, I remember that I thought badly about Sarah. I saw Sarah as sort of the bad person in this story, right? Wicked Sarah. She should have had faith. She should believe God's promises. How could she do that? She should never have laughed. Don't be like Sarah, kids. And, and that's right, of course, right? I mean, that is right. But the older I get, the older I get, the more sympathy I have for Sarah, right? I am deeply sympathetic with her in Genesis 18. Why? For 25 years, she'd been waiting, month after month, thinking, this is the month, this is the month that's going to happen, and then, boom, it crashes. You can only do that for so long before your heart can't take it anymore, and you start to protect yourself. Hope at some point for a person like that becomes a threat. And so you stop trying to hope. Is it the right thing to do? No. No, it's not the right thing to do. Is it understandable? Is it human? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of people here in this room this morning, not all of you, but a number of you who are in Sarah's position. I think there are lots of you here who have had such a steady diet of disappointment and struggle in your life um, that you're not really expecting a whole lot even anymore. Even at Christmas time. Even when we're singing these songs, even when the kids come up, I mean, you've learned how to smile, you've learned how to sing along, but if you're honest in your heart, all these, all these words just sort of pass through. They bounce off. You don't have much hope, and you've just about given up trying to hope. You're in a place where you think tomorrow will be just like today, only you'll be one day older and a little more tired. If that's you, then the message of Genesis 21 and the message of Christmas is for you. Because in Genesis 21, we heard Sarah laugh again. Only this time, the laughter she had is completely different than the laughter in Genesis 18. This time, it is a laughter of pure, unadulterated joy. It's joy for the promises of God completely filled in her life when she didn't expect it at all. This laugh of joy is the opposite of the laugh of flippancy. This is what C.S. Lewis says, too, in the Screwtape Letters. The opposite of flippancy is this laughter of joy. He calls it the serious visit of heaven, the serious business of heaven. He calls it the sound of heaven. He calls this kind of laughter a meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience. It is a sound of pure grace. And, and it's a special kind of laughter of joy that's different than, than maybe other kinds of joyful laughter you hear. 
So for example, maybe imagine a group of, of high school boys, all football players, and in their sophomore year, they think, you know what? We're going to win the state championship by the time we're seniors. And they start dreaming about that, and they start working on that. You know, they work out every summer, and they practice, and they, they support each other. And sure enough, by their senior year, they have a great winning season. They make it all the way to the state championships, and they win the thing. And in the locker room afterwards, they embrace each other, and they high-five, and they laugh, and their laughter is a laughter of joy. But that is not the kind of laughter that Sarah laughed. Right? It's not the same kind of joy that Sarah had when she had what she had because that's a laughter of achievement. When Sarah laughs her laughter of joy, she doesn't expect anything. She completely given up. She was at point zero, and yet God comes into her life, and new life starts kicking inside her, starts kicking down the walls of her cynicism, turns her weeping into dancing, and everlasting joy crowns her head. It was nothing she expected. It was nothing she was working for. It just happened completely outside her power. So Sarah laughs and names her baby after laughter, and it's not the laughter of achievement, it's the laughter of pure grace. That theme of pure grace, that theme of God's promises, being able to accomplish what they say they're going to do, no matter what we think and no matter what we do or no matter what we don't do, that is front and center of Genesis 21. Maybe you noticed, and I tried to emphasize it when I read it, in the first two verses, three times God's promises were emphasized. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Three times in two verses. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is leaning over us and poking you right in the forehead, trying to get it through your thick, cynical skull. God's promises are true. They are real. They will happen. This story is all God. It's not about the strength or the endurance or the planning of people. This story is all God. And all that's left for Sarah and Abraham to do is laugh and maybe sing. At this point, is there anyone here in this room who has not yet connected this story with the Christmas story? If you have not, let me make the connection for you. The birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah completely anticipates the virgin birth of Jesus to Mary. It's the same kind of birth, right? A virgin birth. A child born not by a husband's will, but born of God. Mary doesn't do anything. The Holy Spirit overcomes her and does it. A story about God's power, not about human expectation. Is there laughter in the Christmas story? Well, there isn't actually a place in any of the Christmas stories where someone is recorded as laughing, although the shepherds, remember, when they leave the stable, they glorify and praise God and run through the streets of Bethlehem telling everyone what they've seen. I've got to believe that there was at least some laughter in them. How could there not be? That morning when they got up, all they hoped for was a meal and a warm place to sleep, and by the time the day was over, they'd talked to angels and seen the Savior of the world. This is God's MO. Genesis 21, Luke 2, this is how God works in the world. 
He does it in Luke 2. He does it in Genesis 21. He'll also do it in Luke 24. A group of women will come to a tomb and all they will expect is to embalm a dead body. They expect nothing but death. And what do they find? They find that Christ is risen. God has acted against their expectations. God will do the same thing at the very end of each and every one of your lives. You will finish in weakness, you will descend into darkness, and at the very moment when your strength is gone, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, God will pull you into the light. And what's the first thing you will do? Well, I don't know, but maybe laugh. Laugh that all your doubts were so wrong and that God's promises were completely true. So my last word to you here today is especially directed to all those who come into this place flat and listless. Those people I was talking about before for whom the message of Christmas just isn't getting through. And this is what I want to say to you. Fear not, for I bring you tidings of great joy which shall be for all people Jesus Christ is born. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God has made strong promises to you, and they will not break. Now, maybe all those words I just said just bounce off you still. Maybe you don't feel them. Maybe they still feel like a bunch of preacher cliches that every preacher says at Christmas. If that's true, I'm sorry. I hope for better for you. I understand. But in the end, if you belong to Jesus, and I believe that you do, it doesn't matter. Because God will do what he promised with you. If he could change Mary's cynicism, he can change yours too. Because it's God we're talking about here. And he will do as he has promised. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this message of hope that comes into our busyness, this message of hope that comes into our cynicism, this message of hope that comes into our distraction, this message of hope that comes into our ordinariness and reminds us of your strong promises and the everlasting life that we have in you. Lord, I pray that today and tomorrow and as this Christmas season unfolds, that hope may be lit in every heart in this room. And like the shepherds, we may leave this place rejoicing. Amen.